Thank you, Lord Jesus. Though outwardly we are perishing, decaying, Father, fading away, inwardly inside of us we're being renewed day by day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow in our dedication and our commitment to you, Lord. You are so good. And Father, we don't for one second base our life or success or where we're at based on this world, but we, it's founded on you, Lord Jesus. It's, on, it's, it's trusting in you as our Lord and Savior. It's turning from sin, turning from darkness, turning from the ways of this world, and giving our whole hearts to you in love and obedience. Lord, teach us today as we study your word. And Father, thank you that you are so good. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So turning your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verses 13 through 20 this morning. Looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And let's do this. Let's read the first four verses, and then I'm going to come back and teach through it verse by verse, verses 13 through 20. But uh, if you're there, say I'm there. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill, excuse me, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the title of my message this morning from the text is Salt and Light. Salt and Light. Why is it important? that we understand that Christians are salt and light. It's because we are living in a dark world, okay? And as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, to the rapture of the church, it's going to get darker and darker. And what you guys are, because Christ is in you, is you have his light dwelling on the inside of you. And he calls you to shine that light, to shine that truth. It also says that you are the salt you're the salt of the earth. Salt brings seasoning. Salt keeps the world from falling into decay. That's what you bring to this world. That's what you bring to the world we live in. So we're looking at, actually going to look at three subjects. We're going to look at what it means to be the, the, the salt of the earth, what it means to be the light of the world. And man, I'm so excited about this third one. We're going to talk about it at the end of my message. And it's the fulfillment of God's law. What is the fulfillment of of God's holy law. Talking about the Ten Commandments, but also talking in a broader sense of the Old Testament. We're going to look at the fulfillment. You're going to know when you leave here today what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Because God has a purpose for it, and Jesus lays it out here for us in this text. So you already dive into it? Let's do it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I want to slice this verse up into three sections and teach on it. The first one is that first statement. He says, you are the salt of the earth. That's the first thing Jesus says here. In the ancient world, salt was used to preserve food. Salt would, would remove the moisture, and when you remove the moisture from food, what it does is it keeps the bacteria from growing. And this slows the decaying process, and it preserves our food. They didn't have refrigerators back then, okay? They had to use natural means to keep food fresh, okay? That's what salt did back in the ancient world. You and I, when we serve Christ and we are intentional and living out our faith, you are preserving the world just like that salt preserves the food back in the ancient world. You bringing God into the equation of your life, you are keeping the world from total rot and total decay. You ever heard of human depravity? Total depravity, the scripture talks about. We, the, the world, because we're fallen, sinful creatures, we are wretched. We are totally depraved. We gravitate towards evil. We gravitate towards sin, okay? All of us, you do that, I do that. But when we come to Christ and we become born again, we start serving Christ, we start going against that flow. And we're no longer darkness, but we're in light, okay? And that light is shining on the inside of us. So he says, you are the salt. Well, I was talking about light, but he's talking, you are the salt of the earth. But notice he says in verse 13, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salt again? In the Greek, this phrase, become tasteless, is one word. It's morano. It means to become foolish, to become flat, and to become tasteless. You lose your salt, believer, when one of several things happen. One, when you know what the scripture says, but you ignore it. When you're a Christian, a believer, you know what the Bible says to do, but you ignore it. When the Bible says, crucify the flesh, crucify the sinful desires, repent, and you refuse to repent of sin, and you harden your heart against the voice of the Holy Spirit, you, in essence, lose your saltiness. When you know the truth, but you will not speak it. You know, we are called to speak the truth, not arrogantly, but we're called to speak the truth in love. But we have to speak. Our mouths have to open. Silence is deadly. You lose your saltiness when you care more about the world's opinion than God's opinion. You know, there's this constant pressure on us. Uh, have you felt it? There's this constant pressure on you um, and me to conform to the world. And we have to fight against that pressure to be conformed to the world. And we have to resist it. And we have to say, Lord Jesus, I want to be conformed into your image. I want to reflect you to the world. I want to be the salt of the earth. Romans 12, 12 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. And if you want to know what's acceptable and you want to know what the perfect will of God is, open your Bible. 
open your Bible and see what God says. And don't expect what you read in the Bible to agree with the world. Because as Jesus, as we talked about last week, in Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, his whole purpose of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is to show how God's kingdom is the opposite of the world's kingdom. But we can't lose our saltiness. And then the third part of verse 13, he says, It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus is saying here that your impact on the kingdom is worthless when you lose your saltiness. You have no weight, no power, no validity. That's what the words mean uh, that's being used here. There's no light coming out of you. The world will trample you over, chew you up, and spit you out. And the sad thing about it is, it's deception. It's the world's deception to try to make you conform to the world's standard and not to God's. It's a fight. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you it's easy. It's a fight against our carnal flesh. It's a fight against the philosophy and the spirit of the age. But we have to stand firm if you're going to be faithful to Christ until his return. You got to dig your heels in the ground and say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to serve you and I am going to be the salt of the earth. Friends and family, we have to be intentional. My summary of verse 13 we have to be intentional in living out our faith and bringing Christ into our world. Let's season the world with his truth and be the salt on the earth. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14 is a short verse. We're going to cut this one in half. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The Greek word for light is phos. It is the root word which we get our English word photo. The word photo means, the word photo, you know, we take a picture. It means a picture with a light. And Jesus is saying here uh, that you and I are a picture, are a photographic picture of him to the world. This is what it means to let your light shine. Jesus said in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus says that. And now he's saying to you and I, Christian, you and, and I are the light of the world. Not because there's anything special of us, but because Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit. That is why he says, you are the light of the world, Jesus says, because I am in you. You guys ever heard of the, uh, the sun, moon, and earth analogy on Jesus the light of the world? Anybody ever heard of that analogy, that illustration? Jesus is like the sun, S-U-N, out in our solar system. You and I are like the moon, and the earth is the world. The moon reflects the sunlight onto the earth at night, and what it does is it pierces the darkness. There is nothing more beautiful than a nice, cool fall night, and that bright moon just lighting up the night sky. I, I You know... It's not as clear as like we like for it to be, especially in the city. But back before Irene and I got married, um, my father-in-law took us out to Prosperity, to where there was no light pollution in no direction. And we first got out there, it was pitch black. But within two hours, the white of the Milky Way 
lit up the night sky. And it, it went from pitch blackness to almost like afternoon light from the light from the, from, the, from the stars. But the moon, no matter where you're at, city or in the country, it shines down. It, it, it shines down and it pierces the darkness at night. It's very beautiful. But uh, when is the only time, here's the question, when is the only time the moon does not reflect the sunlight on the earth? The only time, uh, it's called a solar eclipse. It's called a solar eclipse. That's when our planet gets between the sun and the moon. And the moon does not reflect light on the earth. And if you've ever experienced it, it gets really, really dark. I believe many believers today are experiencing a spiritual eclipse. They have allowed the world to come between them and God and their once burning bright light no longer reflects his light because the world has got between um, us and God. It happens a lot because Christians aren't on their guard. They're, they're, they're not prayed up in the spirit. They're not in the word. And, the, and they, they, just, they fade away and they, and they compromise because the world comes between them and the Lord. How does this happen? What, what causes... What causes this to happen for, um, for us to not reflect his light? It comes from the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, verse 19. I believe Jesus points this out to us. In Mark 4, 19, Jesus said, The worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. What causes this to happen? What causes us to compromise, what causes us not to be able to shine our light is, number one, according to Mark 4, 19, he says they're the worries of this world. What are the worries of this world? Things that choke our relationship with Christ and cause us to take our focus off of him. Anxiety, stress, pressure. I believe that's what's being talked about here. Those things can choke, can cause us to take our eyes off the Lord and put our eyes on our circumstances and, and it causes us not to reflect his light like he would like to. Also, Mark four nineteen, the worries of this world and he says the deceitfulness of riches. You know what? That's, that's every man's greatest temptation is to what? Pursue the almighty dollar. You know, the Bible warns us not to pursue riches. Okay? The Bible says do not pursue riches but put your trust in Christ, who will richly bless you. We don't pursue money. God takes care of us as we give to the Lord, as, we good, as we're good stewards of our finances. He will take care of our finances. But never, ever, ever place money above God. It's a, it's a pathway to, to ruin for your life. And then he says there in Mark 4.19, the third thing that causes us not to shine our light he says, the desire for other things. What are the, what's the desire for other things? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's any time you place anything in this life, possessions, family, your spouse, your children, you place anything as being more important than your relationship with God, that is idolatry, okay? We are called to place 
the Lord Jesus Christ first in life. And then it's after God comes our family, comes our church, comes the things that are important to us. Seek ye, Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added. But when we don't do that, when we let the worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things, it dims the light, and we experience this spiritual eclipse. Okay? God wants to use us greatly and mightily to shine his light. So he says, you are the light of the world. Second part of the verse, he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles, excuse me, Sukkot, there was a ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple. Four golden oil-fed menorahs were lit in the temple court. They were huge. They were 75 feet high. They were a reminder to Israel of the pillar of fire that had guided Israel in their wilderness journey. These huge menorahs would illuminate the entire city, and this light could be seen for miles and miles around Jerusalem. As the pilgrims came to Jerusalem, if they came at night, all they had to do was go towards the light. And the streets of Jerusalem during this time would be filled with men and women celebrating and singing and dancing because of God's mighty deliverance and the way he took care of them as they traveled through the wilderness. You and I, friends and family, Christians today, we are like Jerusalem on that hill. And we invite all people to come and celebrate and come and see how great God is. Come rejoice in God's salvation. Come put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience his amazing joy and celebrate all that he has done for us at the cross. That's what we are. We're like that city on the hill. Come be a part of the party. Come celebrate. Come rejoice. Shine his light. Jesus shines the brightest when you and I place him first. You are the light of the world, family. And notice he says you. The, the text says you. We, we don't want to skip over that, that, that indicative statement there. You are the light of the world. Not everyone is the light of the world, okay? Not every single person that does good works is the light of the world. Not every single person who's a part of some form of religion is the light of the world. Jesus says you. He's talking about Christians. And he's saying the Christians are the light of the world, and they are the only light of the world because they are the ones that Christ is dwelling inside of. And he is the source of the light. And he shines his light in us and through us to the world. Look verse 15. He says, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. Friends and family, we don't hide it. We don't hide the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. We are not weird. We're not crazy. The world thinks we're crazy. But we have just found eternal life. And we celebrate it and we rejoice in it. We just love Christ. And just like uh, we place Christ at the center of our lives for all to see. So just like a lamp on a lampstand... You put it on a lampstand so it shines the light so we want Christ to shine us. We don't want, I don't want people to look at 
We don't want people to look at us and say, oh, look at David or look at Pat or, 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 or look at whoever. But we want people to see Christ in us. That is the heart cry of the believer is that people will see Christ. That is where he's going here in this sermon, in, in, this, in this sermon on the mount. And he says, uh, the second half of verse 15, it says, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Do you catch that? All who are where? In the house. Shining our light starts in our home. Not in the church, not in the community. Shining our light, Christians, starts in the home. It's, 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 it's uh, loving and serving our family. It's leading and serving and being like Jesus to, to our husband, to our wife, to our children. You know, so many people want to come to church. Some people, some people want to come to church and they want to be the light. But the question they need to ask themselves, am I being the light at home first? Do I have my house in order? Am I, am I serving my spouse? Am I serving my children? Am, am I loving my family? Am I being Jesus to my family? That's where the light starts. It says it gives light to all who are in the house. I couldn't help but to, that word there grabbed me, in the house. It starts in our home, and then it works its way out into our church, into our community, into our work. But it's got to be right at home first. Verse 16, verse 16, he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The goal of being salt and light is not for you to make a name for yourself. It is so that others will want to know Jesus, the one who's dwelling on the inside, and they will want to glorify him by giving their life to him in complete surrender. Before we move on to fulfillment, the, the fulfillment of the law, I want to give you some practical ways that you can be salt and light. Number one, the foremost, before we, I give you some examples, is, is be salt and light in your home. Be, be the salt and light to your children, to your relatives, to your mom, to your dad, to your, to your family. You know, don't, you know, we come to church, you know, and we, we put that face on. We know we put that Christian expression on our face, and we think all is well, and we're shining our light. Let's carry that into the home. Let's carry that into the community. Let's let that light shine other places. But practical ways you can be salt and light. Number one is, as I said, be involved and serve your family. It starts there. Then after you're, after you're the salt and light in your family, then become the salt and light in your church. Serve your local church. Go to the leadership. Go to the pastor. Say, you know, what, how can I serve here? How can I be a part of the body of Christ? Um, I think it's Ephesians 2.10. says, God has created work for all of us to do. We are created for his good works to serve, but serve in your church. After that, serve in your community. Or, you know, you don't have to, you know, family's first, shining light at home is first, but, you know, in your church, be, be, be involved in your church, then be involved in your community. Go to the PTA meetings, coach the little league team, vote, 
Every single Christian, every single person, period, should vote. You should vote your values, vote your beliefs. But voting is a way that we are salt and light. Be a part of your community. Be in the know of what's going on. Don't, don't crawl into a hole as tempting as it is and shelter yourself from everything that's going on around in the world. But get out there and be a part of the world. Just make sure that you don't be, be the salt, be the light, and don't compromise. Amen? So be the salt and light where you live. Be involved in your community and, and shine his light. Let's continue looking at verses 17 through 20. Boy, this is, man, this is so good right here, family. I just want y'all to soak this in and understand it and hear it clearly. This, this will revolutionize your mind. You, you'll have a clearer picture of the gospel. You'll understand your Bible better if you understand what Christ is saying here. I call this section the fulfillment of God's law. What is the purpose of God's law? I remember for many years, I was, when, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I say God's law, I'm talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. For many times, I thought, you know, what is boundaries for society? It tells us what's right and wrong. And why it does do those things, there's a greater purpose to God's law. This above and beyond moral boundaries and telling us what's right and wrong. They do that, but there's a higher uh, purpose for them. Let's take a look at it. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That, that's a key word there. He came to fulfill it. You look in your Bible, it says right there, Jesus says, I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. What you have there in verse 17 through 18 is here we are given Jesus' view of the law. This is, Jesus, this is how Jesus viewed the law in the Old Testament. And it says here, he came to fulfill the law and the words of the prophet. That word fulfill at the very end of verse 17, that word fulfill, it means to accomplish, to complete, to bring to its destined end. What he's saying here is Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Two things he was referenced there. The prophets, how, how is he the fulfillment of the prophets? They pointed, they pointed them and they point us to the predicted Messiah and his coming kingdom. And then the law, the purpose of the law, we're talking about the moral law, the law shows you and I our sin. It shows us our sin and it, and, and it shows us what sin is. And what you need to understand is this, the law does not save. Let me repeat that. The law does not save. Matter of fact, it condemns. It condemns us. And it leaves us, it leaves you and I in a state of guilt. Think about it. You look at the Ten Commandments. You examine yourself. Have you kept them? I've looked, I've looked at all ten. And guess what? I'm guilty on all ten accounts. 
The law teaches us, tells us to run to the Savior who will forgive us of our sin. Galatians 3.24 and the best translations of Galatians 3.24 is found in the good old King James Version. I love it better than the NASB. But uh, the King James says in Galatians 3.24, the law is a schoolmaster. The law is a schoolmaster that points us to Jesus. God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, is telling you, folks, you've sinned against God. Go to Jesus. That's what it's doing. That's its ultimate purpose, is to, to show us our guilt. And, and, the, and the law, and the, pro, the, the, law, the Ten Commandments, and the prophets of the Old Testament is shouting in every language, in every tongue, wherever the word of God is preached, is saying, go to Jesus. Go to Yeshua, Messiah, the King of Israel, who died on the cross for our sin. That's the purpose of the law. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. You ready for this? I'm going to put a little personification on the law in the Old Testament. If you believe and trust in Jesus... The law and the prophets, they're high-fiving each other. They have done their job, and you are safe in the arms of Jesus. If you have not believed and trusted in Jesus, the law and the prophets, they're shaking their heads, saying, man, we got more work to do on him. We got more work to do on her. That is the fulfillment of God's law. It's not so that you live a legalistic religious, life filled with piety, but that you serve Christ and that you understand that salvation is in him. I'm going to go a little more in this more. Let's continue, verse 19, because we're, we're going to continue this thought, talking about the fulfillment of God's law. Verse 19, he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you don't have to turn there, but make a little note in your Bible, Colossians 2.16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Make it clear that we are no longer under the ceremonial law. We are no longer under the Levitical law. You see it nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the book of Acts. So clearly the law that's being referred to here is the law that we do see continued in the New Testament, which is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Okay? I believe that's what's in view here. And if you, <clears throat> and what he's saying here, when he says, whenever, whenever uh, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, if, 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 if a teacher uh, ignores or does not teach the Ten Commandments, it can be fatal. Because the Ten Commandments define what sin is. And not only do they define what sin is, they give us the reason Jesus died on the cross. 1 John, uh, John chapter 3, verse 4, make a note, go study it. Look at the King James Version. Man, it's another translation. It, it nails that verse. But it says this. It says, sin is transgression of the law. Now, you ever heard of the analogy of the bullseye? I like the bullseye. I, I, I'm not against it. I'm totally supportive. it. But the, the definition that, that you shoot the bow and arrow and you miss the mark, that people call that sin. That's actually a Roman Greco definition from the first century. So that is a definition of sin. But we have an even better definition of sin in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, where it says, sin is 
breaking God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, every sin that could be... Now, I'm not saying... It doesn't specifically spell out every sin that exists, okay? But each sin that does exist in the world that man commits can trace its origins back to one of the Ten Commandments. Because they're like the the grandparents of all sin. It all strays from those uh, Ten Commandments. So we have to teach the Ten Commandments, not for people to become legalistic, but so that people understand sin. And And unfortunately, instead of telling people to come to Jesus so they can find forgiveness of sin, we've replaced it in the modern church with, come to Jesus, you will find love, joy, peace, and lasting happiness. Sorry, don't, don't shoot the messenger, but that, that's not in the Bible. Now, we do experience God's peace. We do experience his joy, but that's not the ultimate reason for coming to Christ. Another one, come to Jesus so you can experience God's wonderful plan for your life. I would like to see Paul preaching that on the hill there at the Acropolis in Athens or in Iconium when he got stoned. No, that's not what he preached. He preached, come to Christ so that you can be forgiven of your sin. Or here's another one. This, is, this one's very famous today. Come to Jesus. He'll get you out of trouble. And people come in an experimental fashion. Okay, is God going to get me out of my trouble? He may get you out of your trouble. He may or may not. But that's not the focus of the gospel. The focus of the gospel is to be forgiven of our sin. These are man-centered gospels, which is really no gospel at all. Instead, what we should be saying is what the Bible says. And we should be saying what Jesus says, what Paul said, and what Peter said, and what James said. Come to Jesus because God has a law, and you and I have broken it. And Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sin. That is the gospel. That is the reason. Now, after you come to him for salvation, he's going to take care of your life, okay? And you can trust him for every area of your life. But make sure you come to him for the first reason, the most important reason, is so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be born again. Not finished. Look at verse 20, continuing the thought of the fulfillment of God's law. Look at what he says here. He gives us the example. Well, he's actually speaking to the Pharisees and scribes. Verse 20, our final verse this morning. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, this is well documented, is they were legalistic. They were wrapped up in legalism. There was an outward show of religion with no true faith or trust in God or the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Old Testament, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean on your understanding, all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Obeying the law, I'm going to set some people free from religion and tradition right now. Obeying the law will not get you to heaven. Religion will not get you to heaven. Tradition will not get you to heaven. Orthodox creeds will not get you to heaven. What will get you to heaven is the righteousness that comes from trusting in Christ and not the law. That is the point 
of this passage and the point of the Sermon on the Mount. So to answer the big question, what is the fulfillment of God's law? The fulfillment of the entire Old Testament and God's law is Jesus Christ and you coming to faith in him. That is the fulfillment of God's law in the Old Testament. Let's make it personal in closing. I'm going to give you an illustration of 2022 of the purpose of God's law. Maybe there's someone here, someone watching online, you don't know Christ. And here it is. Would you consider yourself to be a good person in God's eyes? If you're like Valentine Bob or Lexington Larry, most people say, yeah, I'm a good person. I provide for my family. I work hard. But the question you need to ask yourself is, are you good in God's sight? Have you kept God's law, the Ten Commandments? The Ninth Commandment says, you shall not lie. Have you ever told a lie? If you are, you're a liar. I'm a liar. I've lied before in my life. Have you ever stolen anything? That's a violation of law number six, the Sixth Commandment. Okay? If you've stolen something, you're guilty as a thief. Man, I... Throughout my whole childhood, I was a thief and stole. Seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says he who looks with lustful thoughts commits adultery in the heart. See, we think adultery is just the physical act, which is a sin. But it's also the thought and intents of the heart. So I'm not judging you, okay? But if you find yourself guilty, God sees you. As a lying, oh, one more, the blasphemy. That's uh, commandment number three. The third commandment says, you shall not use God's name in vain. Have you ever used his name as a curse word in your life? Guilty. If you're like me, and I'm not judging you, God sees you as a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart. Now, if God judges you and I by the standard of his Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, would he find us innocent or would he find us guilty? You've probably heard this before, the good person test. Would he find us innocent or would he find us guilty? If you're honest with yourself and the sincerity of your heart, you'll say, you know what, I'm guilty. And the question begs, does that concern you? Does that bother your soul? Does that bother your heart? Does that grab your attention? It should. And if it concerns you, if, if, it, if it does concern you, what did God do so that you could be forgiven and spend eternity in heaven and not hell? What could, you know, and if he judges us, well, if he judges us by the standard of the Ten Commandments and we're guilty, what, what, should, we do, what should happen to us? We should suffer. We should, we should, we should be put away in hell because that's, that's the price for sin. That's the price for rebellion against God is hell. But what did God do so that we could be forgiven of breaking God's moral law? It's the gospel. It's the beautiful gospel. The, 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 Charles Spurgeon said this, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except by the law. Galatians 3, 24, the law is our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ 
that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law, God's moral law, it just leaves us helpless and in a state of sin. It shows us our depravity. And the law says, go to Jesus. Go to Christ and find forgiveness of sin. So what did God do? Back in our courtroom analogy, what did God do so that you could be forgiven of breaking God's moral law? The Bible says at the appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, suffered and died on the cross to forgive you of your sin. Okay, that's what God did for you and for me so that we could be forgiven of breaking his moral law. That, that is the gospel. Now, the big question is, how do we partake of that? How, how, do we, how do we enter through the door? You repent and put your trust in Christ. Repent means to, the word repent, manoye, it means to change your mind, turn from sin, and turn to Jesus. And put your faith in him. Just like you would a parachute jumping out of an airplane. You know, if you were in an airplane at 10,000 feet and it was flying through the air and you had to jump out, what would you want? You would want a parachute. You wouldn't just believe in a parachute, but you would put on the parachute and you would strap it down tight. The Lord Jesus Christ is the parachute. He is the one that saves us in our broken, fallen state. But you repent and you believe the gospel and you say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life and please save me. That is the purpose of the law. That is the purpose of the, the prophets in the Old Testament. They tell you, look to the Messiah. Jesus is prophesied in every single Old Testament book. The moral law says you've broken God's commandments. Now go find mercy for your soul. Go find forgiveness. Go find his Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, is that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. So what's the purpose of God's law? To point us to who? Jesus. What's the purpose of the Old Testament? The point is to Jesus. That's the whole summation of God's law, is to point us to Jesus from the moral law, pointing our sin out, pointing us to the Savior, to studying the Old Testament. We don't throw out the Old Testament. We don't disconnect from the Old Testament. We study the Old Testament because it gives us a rich meaning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, and, and you have not put your trust in Christ, you just, in your heart, between you and the Lord, you just say, God, I repent. Please forgive me of my sin. I turn away and I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. Let that be your prayer. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit is going to come inside you and he's going to make you a new creation. You're going to become born again and you're going to have a radical passion to serve him and live for him because of the new life you have in Christ. It all goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the study this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Lord, help us all 
to be the salt of the earth, Lord. Help us to preserve it. Help us to bring seasoning. And Father, help us to be light. Help, help us, Lord, to allow your light to shine through us. And then, Lord, finally, help us understand the fulfillment of the law in the Old Testament. That we, we have, the law in the Old Testament has done its job once we come to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And again, Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, who hasn't put their trust in you. I pray, Lord, today will be the day of salvation, and they'll trust you with all their heart, and they'll receive you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Be magnified in our lives and let your light shine. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen. 